Welcome to CISO's Insiders Podcast, powered by GRC Consulting. In this podcast, we'll be interviewing leading CISOs and security leaders in the industry for light, eye-level conversations. Here, they share advice and tips, talk about their biggest accomplishments and failures, favorite drinks, key influencers, and much more. We encourage you to walk away with at least one insight that will help you better yourself or your business. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more content, please check us out on social media. Welcome, everybody. Today, I'll be speaking with Maury Haber, the CTO and CISO of Beyond Trust. Uh, so Maury has been in the industry for 20 years now. He has a, an extensive IT background experience. And he's been with this company through uh, uh, a series of a uh, couple of acquisitions for a total of 17 years now. Um, I think uh, going back to 2004, you joined a company called EI as a director of security engineering. You were responsible for strategic business discussions and vulnerability management architecture. Uh, and I also see uh, that you were um, a, a part of CA even before that but if you wanted to step in and you know properly introduce yourself i'd be more than happy thank you so much a pleasure speaking with you today my name is maury haber i am the cto and CISO for beyond trust i oversee the high level strategy for our privileged access management and remote access solution sets and as CISO, i'm in charge of the internal security and cloud security for our offerings the dual hat is a very interesting combination because one, it helps me design and develop solutions for our clients, but I actually use my own products internally and in the cloud to protect my environment and prove that they work accordingly. I started my career very early um, doing uh, reliability and maintainability engineering for uh, flight simulators and maintenance trainers and took a, or basically gravitated towards um, IT and information security, uh, landing at CA before EI Digital Security and then Beyond Trust, and here I am today. Mm -hmm. Okay, and thank you for that. So uh, am I correct in assuming that, uh, so as you mentioned, I think you came from an IT background as opposed to uh, development or application security background, is that correct? That is correct. So. When I was first, my first job out of college in the early 90s, um, I'm an electrical engineer by trade. I was asked to build a database for reliability and maintainability engineering. So essentially failed component parts, trends, analytics based on what was breaking in control systems, electronic systems. And uh, writing database software at that time, going all the way back to the early days of SQL, uh, DBase 3, and even Power Builder. That took me into a variety of roles, uh, including IT and standing up my company at that time's first PC-based network on Windows NT351. Um, I had my own consulting company at the time as well, and then just led me down a very uh, interesting path of pitching and developing software uh, for clients. This landed me as a sales engineer with CA, and I took that role all the way up to being uh, um, basically a development manager in terms of their SWAT team, which was new product development and evangelistic type role before being recruited over to EI, uh, as you stated, for strategic development. That led me to product management, business development, and then ultimately the CTO and now CISO title as well. 
Throughout my entire journey, I've done a lot of public speaking, uh, a lot of writing. In fact, I'm an author of three different books, uh, Privileged Attack Vectors, covering um, basically privileged access management, uh, Asset Attack Vectors, covering vulnerability management, which is being used as a textbook by several colleges throughout the United States today, and Identity Attack Vectors, co-authored with the former CTO of SailPoint, Darren Rolls, covering identity access management and identity governance. So a long journey starting literally as a database programmer in IT all the way to the position I have today. Okay, and we'll definitely try to unpack more about your journey in this podcast now, in this episode. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm, this podcast is not around your current position or your current company. Uh, so I won't be asking too much, too many questions about that, but I did want to ask one question. So where does your product fit? Uh, and, and I mean, beyond trust, obviously. Sure. So privilege access management is a subset of identity management. If you look at the IDSA, Identity Security Alliance, they provide a really good model off of their website that explains the identity landscape, everything from access management, multi-factor authentication, identity governance, etc., with privilege access management being a subset layer. And that's for all privileged accounts, administrator, root, or any account that could be abused or misused within an organization that could create risk, a liability, or data exfiltration. So we specialize in managing administrative rights, removing administrative rights, regardless of how they're used, and regardless of how someone is connecting into that environment. Whether that is someone that is on-premise, someone that is doing it remotely, whether it's a contractor, vendor, role-based admin, etc. So we are really focused on those most sensitive accounts, privileged accounts. Mm -hmm. Okay, and thank you for that background. Um, so before we dig in, I, I always like to start off with a couple of icebreaker questions here. Uh, could you, could you share about your marital status and maybe your favorite drink? Sure. Favorite drink is a uh, single malt scotch, a variety of them that I like. Uh, it's a nice way to basically unwind, but I will drink almost anything except for tequila that just has a bad, bad place in it. And my mornings always start with coffee, uh, marital status, um, uh, married, um, Four kids, most of which are out of the house, doing very successful in their world. Um, very happy home life. Okay, thank you. Wow, four kids, that sounds challenging to me. <laughs> it, is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Um, so let's dive right in. What's the one thing you wish you had known before you begin your career? Um, the one thing I would have wished I would have known before I began my career was the art of communication. Uh, I think it's really important that anybody in almost any role learns how to properly communicate, whether it is through modern social media, whether it is public speaking, whether it's writing, some way of communicating what you know, what you've learned, what you feel outside of the 140 character tweet or something as a blurb on other social media. If you can take knowledge and communicate it effectively, honestly, and reliably to other people, you'll always succeed, succeed in your career. And it took me a little bit of time to learn about that. It took me a lot of time to realize the power of writing a memo in the early 90s, writing a report, and ultimately writing books and public speaking or doing a session like this. Because when you're able to communicate and express your ideas and your knowledge, you will find people that are similar minded and be able to basically assume a leadership role to get there. 
Yeah, and I think this is this has become a, a theme for the past week for me because I'm not. So I I record these sessions in in bulks and then I schedule them, and I had you know I had a, f a few conversations this last week where I got very similar answers. Wouldn't you say that that communication with leadership needs to be in and around the, uh, business topics, meaning you know as a CISO, I'm assuming when you communicate with the leadership of your company or, or previous companies, you need to be, you know, be aligned with the business. You need to speak the business language. Does that make sense? It does. And it's really a very interesting art because when you say communications, taking a report from a tool and giving it to management is not communications. You have to be able to translate that results into something that the leadership understands, especially other departments or other leaders that may not be as technical or may not understand the day-to-day -day nuances that you're dealing with. So polishing your response and communicating it in terms that is uh, effective for them to make judgment calls is key as well. The best example to give you is when speaking with my CFO or other leaders dealing with the financials, they can present to me numbers and spreadsheets that are you know, as wide as they get and as deep as they get. I can read the number and I can understand what they mean. But understanding how they translate to the business is something that they've learned how to communicate. These values are off. These values need to be higher. This is what we need to adjust to get there. They do that art of translation. And CISOs have to be able to take that from a risk, a threat, a vulnerability, a patch, everything, and be able to communicate that in business terms, not only to your peers, to leadership, and the board. It's, it's a fundamental art. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you say that, uh, you know, the, inter the industry has gone through uh, an evolution for the past 10, 15 years, uh, an evolution or a transition. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that how you communicate today, uh, how uh, not you specifically, but the way a CISO communicates today with leadership is different than what it used to be 10, 15 years ago? Maybe due to the fact that CISOs back then did not report to the C-level executive tier. I think the communications has changed, especially for the CISOs. If you went back even five years ago, a CISO may not have even talked to the board, may not even talk to the CEO. They may have sat under the CIO or may not even had a, a C title. They may have just been an information security manager at best. We see this trend of needing to communicate to executive teams and the board because it's not a matter of how you're protecting the organization anymore, what tools you've bought, what strategies you've done, that's still important. But what you're going to do when something does happen, because every company can become a victim. And we've seen that over the last year. We've seen some of the most secure organizations in the world, some of the ones that we would rely on every single day to help us if there was a problem actually get breached. So we have to think about it in the stance of, this is how I, my strategy is to protect. That's been the given. Now we have to escalate our communications to the peers, to the board to say, this is how we're gonna respond if and when it happens. And that's not trivial. That includes everything from cyber insurance. That includes everything to having external counsel on retainer. That includes having forensics teams defined, having knowledge about who to contact in law, law enforcement from the FBI, et cetera, and putting all of that in a proper plan and exercising that plan, not just writing it down, but proving that it works. 
so that when you do communicate, look, we did have this problem. We know how we're going to respond. We know how we're going to craft a letter to our clients. We know how we'll talk to the press. And especially if you're a public company, what you're going to do with potentially for your shareholders in terms of communication. Because the days of thinking that I put all these place, things in place and I am protected don't exist anymore. So yes, the communications do need to elevate. Now I will leave with one caveat. I have seen several of my peers now say we should stop talking to the board. We should stop talking to the C-level executives. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it goes back to the art of communication. Full disclosure of every knot and bolt and widget and phone number and this and that, granted, but communicating that your plan has been tested in place and you have all the pieces ready, that's what should be communicated. And I think that's where things have changed in the last five years uh, in terms of this role and the importance of the role. You know, you mentioned some of your peers uh, said that they think they should stop talking to the board. What's, what, what's behind that? What's the reason for that, in your opinion? The, the reason that they're thinking to stop talking to the board is because it creates a level, level of anxiety. It creates visibility. It also may actually expose some of your internal operations that be, could become a liability. So just saying I'm ready might be just good enough without preparing all of the reports and everything for more detailed visibility. It's kind of the notion of, hey, some, some companies won't disclose who they're using for antivirus and firewall, et cetera, in any conversation because they're worried about a threat actor going, okay, I know what they're using there. Let me see what attack vectors are present, or I know how to refine a vulnerability exploit combination to go to them. It's more about that secrecy type of approach. Mm -hmm. Keep everything tight, keep everything you know, in a container and just express we're ready and let up mm -hmm. on the amount of information being shared. You know what? It's a valid point for some organizations. I don't think it's true for all. Yeah, I would tend to agree with you. I mean, personally, I think that, uh, you know, uh, risk management and risk treatment and risk transfer need to be, this needs to be communicated to, to the leadership uh, because otherwise you just, take on the, all the risk upon yourself, you might not get, you know, uh, you know, the, the budget that you need, you might not get the roadmap that you need in place if you don't communicate that, but that's just my opinion. Um, I do. <laughs> and, and, you know, staying on, on that, the same topic, and I'm, I'll be asking you like one of my upcoming questions because it ties right in, I think. Uh, and you mentioned, you know, that in the past CISOs were usually um, might be under the IT organization. Uh, so, so, so what do you feel about the role of the CISO that's actually a part of the IT organization? I think that the CISO as a part of the IT operation, uh, organization is a strategic mistake for companies. I think that there needs to be a separate set of independence for the CISO regarding who implements and who monitors. Um, I'll give you the example of my own organization. I am not responsible for IT that actually falls under a different department. But my IT department does implement security technology. So my group implements the policy, sometimes helps select the tools, and performs the monitoring. The actual implementation, the changes, and all the change control required is someone else. So it's a proper checks and balances model. Mm -hmm. This means that IT cannot you know, can actually push back on something that may impact users, may be counterproductive or something they believe will not be effective in terms of a policy or security solution. 
A CISO should not be running both departments. They should be separate so that you do have an appropriate checks and balances so that there are multiple eyes or four eyes looking on a project to make sure it stays secure. Okay, and thank you for that perspective. Uh, going back a bit, um, when you look back in your, at your career, what would you say your biggest failure was and what did you learn from it? I've had several big failures. Uh, <laughs> um, one that comes to mind came early in my career as an IT professional. Um, and I, I have to say, it probably gave me an ulcer and weeks of sleepless nights. And uh, I was very immature at the time in handling it. We were building out our first PC-based server network. And um, this was using NT351, for those that may remember it. And we had a choice of picking compact servers or Intergraph servers, uh, both of which don't exist today. They've both been acquired or, and or gone out of business. Um, we had to choose between, in the processor lines, Pentium Pros or Pentium 2s. And I made a mistake in the specifications of the product. I chose a platform that um, was not well suited and uh, it caused angst to no end to do that. Luckily, I did have the backing of my management and we were able to um, return these servers that did not function correctly and switch to the other vendor. Um, I have to say that that stress of saying this is the one we should use, trying to implement it and it failing in a blaze of glory was incredibly painful. But my management stood behind me. They understood the specs and the reasons why. There was no understanding as to why it should have failed. Still today, I don't know why it could have failed, but we went and switched to the other vendor and kept on back on track. But in my first management role and decision role for selecting large quantities of servers, that was my biggest mistake. And the lesson that I learned was specs don't always mean, you know, that it'll work. And two, that if you have the trust of management in your decisions, they will help you correct an error because you'll always make errors. Everybody makes mistakes and that's not the end of the world. It's having the backing to admit it, correct it and move on. That'll make you successful. So two part, mm -hmm. two part answer. Okay, and having touched on your biggest failure, what would you say your biggest accomplishment was? My biggest accomplishment occurred about four years ago uh, with the first publication of Privileged Attack Vectors. That book now has two editions. Um, it almost started as a, a dare type. I mean, I write a lot. I write for Forbes. I write for a variety of periodicals. If you just Google my name, you'll find me across the board and including some humorous anecdotes about an alias that I have. Um, that's not me, just putting it out there. Um, but the amount of writing that I do, um, my management team just was, why, why don't you just write a book? And I took it to heart and then they sponsored it. Oh. Actually seeing my name in print coming out available in a paperback and seeing it sell well um, was huge. And then being able to take that through three more books, uh, the two others that I mentioned and then a second edition of the first I think being able to take the communications all the way to the form of a book was my biggest accomplishment. Wow. And you mentioned you have a few of those, right? I have uh, three three books, one with two editions. And the second edition is a basically a, nearly a complete rewrite of the first. It's a different book. Okay. Same title. And you know, Maury, uh, so 
looking back at your career and you know you've published three books you're the CEO and CTO of uh almost 300 million dollars company uh what advice would you give someone that wants to pursue a career similar to yours it, it is an interesting career i've only met several other people that have the dual title um the CTO position really just came naturally from product management, leadership, product design, etc. Adding the CISO title was a little bit unexpected. When the company came, let me back up a little bit. It'll it'll explain it better. In 2018, um, Baumgar acquired Beyond Trust, and in the same year, acquired Avecto and Lieberman. So we effectively had four companies coming together under the Beyond Trust name. And I had written already um, two books on cybersecurity at that time. My CEO was like, look, you understand this. You speak to people all the time. You know what the best practices are. You understand regulations. Would you consider stepping up to the CISO role? This was three years ago. And I said, okay. I had never done it before, but I mean, right? How hard could it be? I was a little wrong with that. <laughs> so in the CISO slot, four companies, we have to pick new antivirus. We have to pick all these things. We have to come up with a plan. And it really pushed my ability, my writing, my knowledge to the hilt to be able to say, I know what the best practices are. I have to actually now implement them. So we developed the strategy. We're going fully cloud. We're going to do this. We're going to pick on these vendors. We're going to use this modeling. We're going to use these hardening techniques from CIS, et cetera. And this is the path we're going to go down. So becoming a CISO was more of an accidental approach for me. It wasn't necessarily my intent. And I will say CISOs do lose sleep. It is the absolute truth. There are nights that you go, oh my God, did that really happen? Okay. Uh, you know, and it graces through your mind all night but I wouldn't change it for the world. The combination of the two is what is so powerful. And I wish more organizations could actually embrace the duality of this model because I can help design or help recommend to my product managers and my development teams, the strategy for effective privileged access management products. They go ahead, design it and build it, but I actually then go implement it as if I was a customer. I use all of my products internally to prove that they are effective in mitigating risk on premise and in the cloud. That feedback loop is priceless. So my journey really from product management helped me get to that place, but most product managers never see the proof outside of getting client testimonials and case studies. I'm actually experiencing it firsthand. So anybody that is looking to do both has to have the strong product management background and also would have to potentially have a security background or another type of executive background like support or something else to merge the two together. And the benefits, um, the rewards are huge. It, it, it's not an easy path to get to, but you have to be able to basically do exactly what you're telling people to do or implement what you're telling people to do and um, realize the benefits and all the faults and correct them as you go along in order to have this type of journey. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, so is there, but is there any like specific advice that you can give out? Because as you mentioned, your position is quite unique, right? 
you don't see a lot of, uh, you know, CISOs slash CTOs out there. Typically, these, these roles are either, uh, you know, divided or, you know, the CISO has like uh, some responsibilities or they work in collaboration with the product team. Uh, and, and again, granted, I, I understand that your career is, is a bit, um, it's, it's a bit unique, but is there like, if you, if, if you would, let's say you mentor uh, someone new to the industry, a security practitioner that want to really wants to either, you know, become a CISO or even a CTO, what, what your advice would be to them, like how, on how to start, where to go, people to talk to? So one thing is, is getting involved in the community, whether you engage in uh, nonprofit organizations like the CSNP, cybersecurity nonprofit, where I mentioned the IDSA before, get to know people in your community. But when you start becoming a leader, there's two things that are critically important. The first is trust. You must trust the people that start working for you. You have to empower them and you have to listen and be humble to their responses. You don't know everything. Being a good executive or a CISO or even a security practitioner is much like being a doctor. You go to medical school and then you start to specialize, whether you're looking at feet, whether you're doing ear, ear uh, nose and throat, whether you're looking at eyes, whether you're doing brain surgery, open heart surgery, you become a specialist. Security professionals are the same way. You cannot know everything. And a general protect practitioner in the medical world knows enough about a lot, but you're certainly not going to let them go in and, you know, put you under the knife and anesthesia to go do surgery. So you have to trust the people underneath you are their specialties, know their specialties and can communicate. So the, one of the biggest things to success and what I recommend to people is if you are considering going into management, branch out, look for those nonprofits, the ISC2, all of the organizations where you can meet peers and learn. Then two, become humble. Listen, know that you can listen to people, trust people. The main reason that I feel I, I can do well, I wouldn't say that I'm a you know, perfect, is that the people that I have working for me to handle my governance, risk, and compliance, my people handling my infosec, my team handling uh, the CTO roles as deputy CTO, and et cetera, is because I trust them. I know they're professional. I know they're honest. They know that they can count on me, just like I mentioned in my biggest failure, that I've got their back. I'm not going to throw them under the bus. They can come to me with any problem. And even if I don't understand what they're doing, I can trust their judgment. So you have to be able to relinquish the power for people to make decisions and make the right decisions. And you need to make sure that they know that if there's a problem or mistake, they can count on you. And that's the best recommendation I can say to anybody wanting to get in here and grow their career path is trust your employees. That piece will go a long way to the success in your career. Okay. And you know, tying back to this, what would you say and you might have answered this already, but what would you say were the best resources that have helped you along your way and throughout the career path? The best resources are mentors, whether they're, you know, a formal relationship or just someone that you met that you can pick up the phone and go, hey, what would you do? Or it's drinks. It's a little harder with COVID. Uh, some of those relationships are harder to build through Zoom meetings, webinars, and things like that. But some of the best ones turned out to be going to Vegas, going to trade shows and going, oh, yeah, it's 4 a.m. We probably should go back at night. Um, <laughs> those types of people that you then rely on and trust on have helped me the most. 
they've also helped provide me guidance, insight, and perspective. Because you can look at the same problem in hundreds of different ways, and sometimes their perspective is not something that you ever even considered. And it goes back to that skill of listening, learning, and understanding, and not speaking because you want to reply. It's speaking because you're acknowledging their position and then formulating a new response or taking a hard stand in what you know, you already know. That listening component and the rationale is the most important piece, and that's come from mentors. You can read every blog, every website. You could go through your 10 favorite lists every single day and go this article, this article, this article, but you're just ingesting knowledge. You're not formulating it, comparing it, and seeing other perspectives. And that's where the mentorship or peer leadership type approach or even sitting on a customer advisory board for another company helps because it allows you to see things that you normally would not. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned mentors just now. So, so who, who would you say were the three people that have been the most influential to you? And I'm not only speaking about mentors. I mean, could be a spouse, it could be a mentor, it could be anyone, basically. Um, there are a couple of mentors I've had in my life um, outside of family. I'll, I'll leave it to the work. I'll, I'll focus it on work. Sure. Um, my first large mentor uh, was a gentleman when I did a little bit of QA work for a uh, vending machine manufacturer. He took me under his wing and he taught me a lot about being a manager. Um, it was my first management role. I had QA managers working for me. Um, I, I have no idea where he is today. Um, I haven't spoken to him in 25 years or so, but he literally taught me the ropes on how to be a good manager. My second, who I do communicate with, uh, was my manager at Computer Associates. And um, he taught me everything that was wrong and right about being a manager, but also taught me how to do public speaking. Uh, I, I credit his skill sets for getting on stage and learning how to communicate strictly to him. He, he was, he's probably one of the kindest men in the world, one of the most opinionated men in the world, but he shared his knowledge freely and openly and coached better than anybody else I could ever, I, I could ever state. Um, that already took me through to my last position, um, just someone that believed in me, just said, look, Here's a task and a problem. Tell me what you're going to do. You give them a response, you tweak it and let you have it. And in all three of those cases, these were people that trusted me to make decisions, provide responses, and empowered me as mentors, not just said, go do this. So I think many of the lessons that I've learned from those three people um, were that they basically instilled the ability for me to make decisions and take action. Trust. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Um, and what would you say, is there like one common myth about this profession, the cybersecurity space that you want to debunk? The biggest thing about cybersecurity that I want to debunk is very near and dear to almost anybody that works with computers every day. You get the phone call from somebody, hey, can you help me set up my printer? Can you help me do this? Can you transfer my contacts from phone to phone? <laughs> you know what? I'm, I think many of us have been in that place time and time again. Is this a phishing email? In cybersecurity, anybody can get spoofed. Um, recently, um, and I, I've talked about this uh, even in a blog that I wrote, 
recently, a peer of mine, a friend of mine, um, had his mail hijacked, and he did not know it. And the threat actor came in and used his sent email box to basically do a reply and said, hey, I hadn't heard from you. You know, what's your thoughts? And I knew the person. I trust the person. But they changed the link inside the email to a malicious watering hole. And yes, I clicked on it. But once it popped up for asking for credentials, I knew something was wrong. Mm-hmm. The point here is, is you could be the best cybersecurity professional in the world. You can still get fooled. If the person on the other side socially engineers you or has someone else that's been compromised, you can get owned as well. So the biggest theory to basically say as a debunk, just because you're a cybersecurity professional doesn't mean all your training, all your knowledge and everything else makes you immune immune for attack. Threat actors can be very creative. And if they compromise something that you inherently trust, you could be a victim too. Yeah. And if you catch you at a bedtime where you, you, you don't have, you know, the attention span, even if you're highly aware, you know, you, they could catch you like, like while you're down and, and then, you know, that they might be able to social engineer it effectively. I agree with that. Agreed. Especially like if you're on vacation, um, mm-hmm. uh, when, um, the companies came together in 2018, um, I, I did receive an email from someone claiming to be my CEO. Uh, using his name. I could not see on my phone their address. And I replied. And the first thing they asked for was gift cards. I knew it was fake. Mm -hmm. But I did reply because all I could see was his name. You know, someone was trying to take advantage of a new company, new executive leadership. And that's a very common type of attack vector during mergers and acquisitions to target new people or the merged up people because you don't know. And if you claim to be someone else, you might be ripe to make that click. Okay, um, moving on, uh, what would you say are the main concerns that CISOs nowadays have? The main concerns for CISOs today revolve around the divergence of attack vectors. If we went back 15, 20 years ago, we were really starting vulnerability management and patch. We worried about bots basically, uh, and worms basically disrupting our networks, whether it was SAS or Blast or Code Red, blue screening machines, taking them offline, disruptions. The diversity now includes everything from ransomware to ransomware with extortion to all those worms. And threat actors are not smashing and grabbing like an old school, you know, window case, stealing everything and running. Most of the time they're trying to run under the radar for a persistent presence. The diversity of attacks are what are scary. And in the last several months, we've now seen those attacks starting to include third parties, vendors, software supply chains, et cetera. And the diversity just keeps on widening. Now with even more privileged accounts on premise and in the cloud and the amount of SaaS applications, that diversity is even going wider. Because as we saw just a few weeks ago, um, there was someone from the US government who left their system uh, unlocked at home and a child's put in a bogus Twitter message um, from basically a US government account, uh, a defense account. There are so many privileged accounts and so many ways to disrupt or cause trouble or raise an eyebrow that that divergence in attack vectors, especially with privileges, is even going wider. 
So for the security professional, you're not just thinking, okay, scan and patch anymore like we were doing 15, 20 years ago. We're now looking to our left, to our right, behind us, every direction to see if something is coming at us. And that's that's the hardest thing. Yeah. And the reason I'm smiling is because yesterday we actually had a family Zoom meeting because my daughter turned eight. And so my son was using my computer and he's using he was using my Zoom. And then when that was done, I came back to my computer and I logged into a business meeting over at Zoom. And I realized I had, he put on a filter where I had lipsticks and, and like uh, green eyebrows. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out how to, how to remove that. So we had to pull him back from his, from his other room while he was studying. <laughs> and and he had to and he had to remove that. So so I mean internal internal malicious uh, users definitely even in your house right now. Even a mistake, and I think yeah. that showed up in a court case where a lawyer showed yeah, up as a cat. The, that, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yes, um, is that a privileged account? No. Can it cause a potential big problem? Yeah. Absolutely. If I'm negotiating a big contract and I've got red lipstick on, no offense to anybody, that does not look right. It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, is there any way you could share, you know, like what a, what a typical day looks for you? What's your daily routine? My daily routine? Well, outside of coffee, uh, which <laughs> I I'm sometimes wonder if there's more coffee in my veins than blood. Um, I start off getting up like everybody else, two feet on the floor. You know, there's <laughs> no difference. We're, we're not superhuman. Uh, but I do go through a traditional triage of overnight emails. I look on uh, my standard websites um, that I look just for interesting news or things like that. And then I start whether it's my tasks, my projects, reviewing what my team is looking for, uh, et cetera. It, it involves a routine primarily based around, has there anything been escalated that needs to divert my attention? Or can I follow the routine of looking what's in the news, checking how the teams are doing, and then getting into any projects, calls, or work that I need to do. However, if there is an exception in the morning, then the workflow completely changes. It could be everything from a zero-day exploit, it could be a vendor, it could be um, an anonymous uh, uh, threat actor, it could be a researcher, all different things that may say, I have to change my view for the day because someone sent into my secure email box a potential vulnerability on my website, for example. And now we have to go and do the triage and see if it's real and everything else and talk to the researcher. So the day really starts with, are there any risks or any threats I need to work with? And if so, I change my plans for the day, otherwise standard work. But without coffee, none of it happens. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's down the line, right? Coffee. Yes. Only coffee. coffee. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and in the previous episode I recorded, uh, the guy that was on also mentioned, you know, he, he was going over his daily routine and, you know, by the time we hit 4 p.m., he's already on his eighth cup. But uh, <laughs> I try to limit it to two or three, but um, I, I will say if I'm answering emails before a cup of coffee, it's going to have grammar. It'll have misspellings. Um, it, they're not good. That's all. They're just not good. Yeah, definitely. And in your opinion, you know, if you compare like 2019 and 2020 
to 2021 from like a budget planning perspective? And again, I'm not talking specifically about your company, but you know, trends in the industry. Do, do, do you see any changes there? I do. So from 2019 to 2020, um, there have been significant changes and I'll just give it in a nutshell based on me. In 2019, I spent over 200 nights in hotels. 2020, I had maybe 10, the beginning of the year. And right now, since March of 2020, zero. My personal experience with travel was completely disrupted. I have never been home this long in my entire career, even since graduating college. I think this is true for many executives and teams and sales teams and auditors and support engineers across the board. So how do you handle everybody working from home? You have to ramp up resources for at home, whether they're laptops, security, make changes, et cetera. So we saw budgetary security changes because of the pandemic to handle systems at home. And we're still seeing that. So the priorities have changed. Budgets have increased to add new technologies or change technologies to work from that. And it has been a bigger push for security solutions to the cloud because it's much easier to maintain security of a device that someone's working at home from the cloud than require them to VPN in to get updates, patches, things like that. So yes, an increase. And with that shift to the cloud, you're seeing many licenses going from traditional perpetual on-premise to subscription-based in the cloud, also changing that increase in spend. So the pandemic has caused a, a, a very interesting disruption, not only for the way people might acquire my own company's products, but the way that I've had to consume products to protect my resources mm -hmm. as a CISO, as people now are not traveling, uh, one, a lot, but two, all those people that were in home, uh, working in the office are now at home as well. And those fundamental shifts have been significant. I saw a report this morning that says airline travel is predicted within the month to be back to 90% of capacity for people, uh, non for people on vacation. However, it's only about 20% for business for travel. Business travel yeah. And that's the interesting piece. So people traveling for leisure is good. Businesses, no. And the reason mainly be is, does the business want the liability of sending someone somewhere or asking them to go somewhere and they are getting sick, even with the vaccines. So that spend and that money to still conduct businesses, business remotely and support remotely, I still believe will continue to grow as we potentially age out legacy technologies and ship more to the cloud and, and the spend. Mm -hmm. So I, I surmise that you assume that uh, this work from home, uh, sort of sort of a paradigm will will remain for at least a few years that's what you're saying i think at least for the next six months and then i think it'll taper off i think there's also a very interesting ramification for other industries the commercial real estate market is taking an absolute beating mm -hmm. many organizations that were growing or thinking about expanding have put those on hold many organizations are now offering very flexible type of plans to go into the office and some organizations of uh, companies that I'm familiar with based on my peer CISOs are going, just close the office. These people are just as effective at home. Do I really need to have them come in? I'll go rent a common workspace or a hotel conference room once a month for everyone to come together or every couple of weeks. I don't need that expense. So we will see additional changes. And um, I think this will be longer term than what it needs to be. But I think the casual days of business, jump on a plane for a two hour meeting, 
I don't think those will come back for quite some time. Yeah, interesting. Um, and and let me ask you a couple of questions about about vendors here, if if I might. Um, sure. If and, and I know you're also considered like your company also is considered a vendor, right? But if you put yourself in the shoes of a vendor, just for a moment, what is what is the one promise that you make to yourself uh, not to ever do? As a vendor, one promise I do I make to myself that I would never do. Wow, that's a pretty hard question. I, I think it goes back to a lot of the other conversational points that we've discussed on. I would never state a future feature functionality or something that can be done, is done, or will be done that will never occur or the product just can't do. I've seen many vendors stretch their answers or, of course it can do that. You gotta write a script. Yeah, if you configure this, 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 and this, and it, it's just unrealistic. I, I think as a vendor, one of the most important things I expect of my vendors and that I do myself is to be realistic of the capabilities of the products and not try to stretch every answer to say yes. It's okay to say no. And it's actually better to say no so that you don't set false expectations or potentially um, misrepresent what you're doing to the client. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically never or never overpromise and under deliver. It's better to under promise and over deliver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's hard to do because sometimes if you under promise, then the competitor might wipe you out in, in terms of a bid. It is a matter of honesty. It's a matter of trust again. I can do this. This can be done. It might be hard. Being factual and sincere uh, is your always your best approach. Honesty is always the best approach. Okay. And you know, holding the position of the CISO and the CTO, I'm sure you get a lot of sales pitches, you know, coming into your inbox, LinkedIn, and, and so on. Could you single out like uh, one or a few of those as the most annoying ones? Oh gosh, I just had one the other day. Um, I get about twice a week a gentleman that's calling me now. Did I make you angry? I must have, you know, expletive. Um, you know, something. You won't return my calls. You won't respond your emails. I know I can really help you. Will you please respond? I'm like, God, you don't even know me, right? You can't treat me like that. Um, I do leave my phone on, just do not disturb all day long. Um, I will field anywhere from 50 to 75 calls near the end of a quarter for someone looking for a bluebird, but on average 10 to 15 vendor calls a day. So I leave my phone on do not disturb, wow. but I have to leave the feature on that if you call twice, and this is not a hint to any vendor, that it will ring through. So some of the savvy vendors will ring two or three times within five minutes and get through and I will answer it because it is ringing. And I don't know if it's an emergency from the kid's school or whatever it may be. But the most annoying ones assume that they have a personal relationship with me out of the gate, like that voicemail that I was referring to. Don't. You have no idea who I am, and I have no idea you are. And security professionals, unfortunately, inherently, don't trust unless you build trust. Uh, zero trust, right? <laughs> For lack of a better pun. So treat me like a professional. Ask me what you want. And don't ask me, what are my security initiatives? What tools am I using? I'm not going to disclose to you my security posture on a first, second, or third call. It's just not going to happen. 
One of the more common ways that people have been trying to get in the door are going, I got free Air, uh, AirPod Pros, or I'm going to give you tickets you know, to Uber Eats or things like that. You know what? I might look at the email for a few seconds, but most of the time, you can't assume that any reasonable executive or any employee is going to take it. Many companies do have anti-bribery policies and anything over 25 or 50 bucks is just not accepted. So offering high priced, uh, you know, swag to get a phone call, not good. That's, it's just not going to work. So you have to be careful, uh, especially who you're targeting with what information, because many companies just can't accept it. So having touched a bit about what not to do as a vendor, what it is that you are looking for in a vendor? And I know you mentioned trust, so it's definitely up there, but is there anything else? I look from a vendor to be best of breed, but integrate. The, the days of having a full platform are very real. Having one vendor to do a lot is really important. But there's a point where you go so wide, you become a big box vendor. And that's not always the best approach. Yes, you're consolidating the number of vendors, but you may sacrifice capabilities in an area. And it's impossible to have best of breed and do everything. Um, we've seen that problem from multiple vendors over time. And many of those vendors in the last few years really have just imploded on themselves because it's not a realistic model. So I look for best of breed that can go moderately wide, not arms wide, but they excel in integrations. They realize the value of partnerships where they're working with the other tools in my ecosystem and can do well with sharing information, keeping up with released versions and things like that. So when I'm trying to solve a problem, I'm looking for a vendor that solves my problem, potentially can solve more than one, but also works well with the tool sets that I have or other tool sets I might be considering in the future. I'm not looking for someone to say, I can solve all your problems and I've got 50 products in my portfolio, have a nice day. That, that, that just doesn't work anymore, especially in security. Got it. And are there any other CISOs in the industry might be in your uh, you know, network of peers that you look up to? There are a few CISOs that I look up to. Um, I have a couple of peers that have uh, had a variety of jobs from stock exchanges to um, casinos, to cell phone companies, to pharmaceuticals. Uh, without name dropping, they are ones that I follow regularly, I talk regularly with, and uh, their challenges are quite unique. Um, definitely different than being a vendor, but things like the attack vectors they experience experience as well. So while their challenges may be more around data privacy or intellectual property, a hacker's a hacker. They're going to find a way in and we may all be using similar type of websites or, you know, cloud services or, you know, SaaS applications. They experience the same things I do. And that's where good communications with them uh, allows me to have those relationships because we can share information. Uh, CISOs tend to run in herds, but in terms of their business problems, they're they're pretty different. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, is there any way vendors and listeners actually can connect with you in a non-intrusive manner? Sure. So vendors and listeners can absolutely connect with me. Um, I accept all uh, connections on LinkedIn. You can find me just by Maury Haber. Um, if you send me a message trying to sell me something or disclose information out of the gate, I've just made a connection with you. Um, the reason I do accept that, and it's a different philosophy 
than many of my peers is because there might be a time that I'm looking for someone or looking for someone in a trait, or we may have mutual um, peers or mutual friends that can act as a broker. Yeah, I know you, I know him. Also, it's a little selfish. As I've indicated earlier, I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of posting. So if you're friending me, you're basically saying, I want to see what you're writing. So you now become potentially amplification for the message that I'm trying to communicate outwards. But I will connect with anybody that does. Mm -hmm. In addition, if you just want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Maury Haber, uh, straight up. But I do, like I said, accept all inbound connections because I've had people just like firing up for this podcast that reached out to me and invited me. And I'm happy to connect. But if you're going to use it as a sales arm to go, you know, what AV solution do you have? Are you thinking about replacing your SIM? You can't assume that that's what my mission and goals are for the next six months or a year. That type of approach, that type of cold call approach is rarely successful at best. Yes, I agree. Um, and, you know, we're at the tail end of our discussion and I want to be respectful of your time. But let me just ask you a couple more questions before we log off here. What's the single most important thing to you in your career? <sighs> the single most important thing to me in my career? To live forever? No joke. Um, <laughs> I know this sounds real corny, but this is about as personal as it gets. Um, everybody wants to create a legacy for themselves or be remembered. Uh, I think by writing books, departing my knowledge, communicating. I will instill long after I'm gone, some of my knowledge somehow, some way. The books I published have ISBN numbers. They're in the Library of Congress. If in five generations, 10 generations, hopefully someone wants to see who their great-great-grandfather is or look at early research on privilege attack vectors, my name is associated with it, uh, leaving a legacy. It's one of the most important things for me personally, and that is the success of my children, making sure that they grow up well, healthy, happy, but also leaving a name for myself that if someone's looking for me, they can find. I know it sounds kind of selfish, but it's a personal question. That's how I feel. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I also want to leave a legacy, so I can relate to that. And... For almost the final question here, and this is a fun one to ask, if you had unlimited funds, what would you do with your life? Oh, that's a dangerous question. <laughs> I can think of a lot of quotes from movies that I could answer with, but I don't think the audience would like it. Unlimited funds. Okay, so if I was to take some of the richest people on earth and said I had access to their resources or unlimited funds, I think the standard answer would be charity, philanthropy. Um, I honestly never have given it thought that way, but I think there are not necessarily people that need handouts, but I think there's plenty of ways of improving education uh, worldwide. Um, when maybe 10 years ago, when the One Laptop program came out, and if you're not familiar with that, these were laptops that were sub $100 that could be powered by cranking crank on the side or pulling a cord and it did an internal generator and they were handed out through uh, third world nations. That type of approach of bringing the internet education, the power of computers to people um, really struck a chord with me. And I, I donated, I, I donated quite from at that time period, what I thought was significant of what I could do. Those types of efforts 
I think in form of education would be the most meaningful. It's one thing to say, I'm going to give to charity, I'm going to feed the homeless, but as a technology professional, I think there's technology that we can impart on people like programs like that to help educate and bring people together and exchange knowledge that are the most beneficial. And that's, I'd probably continue down a similar path to that. Okay. And, you know, as a, an avid consumer of information, have you listened or, or read to something recently that has inspired you? It's interesting. One of the things we do at Beyond Trust is we have, a, you know, like many companies, Microsoft Teams, and we created a channel called the Book Club. And I don't actively post on it, but I do read what people recommend for posting of books. And there's been a recent trend of leadership books that have been out there. And I have to say that if you are trying to go down a route of self-improvement or learning how to better yourself in your career or your home, many of those books will help you, even if you just gravitate to one or two concepts that are out there. And without name dropping them, I think some of them have helped me in recent times better understand how people uh, consume information and how people are motivated or why people are motivated to make a change. So if you're looking for self-improvement, finding book clubs is great. Like I said, we do one internally and some of the recommendations have been along these lines. Find things that are going to help you improve, um, whether it's spiritually, whether it's professionally, whether it is through something like TED Talks. Um, I, I'm an avid sci-fi person. Um, I, I know it sounds silly, but I love Star Trek and the concept of self-improvement and self-bettering and things like that are, are near and dear to me. I think you can always improve and become a better version of yourself day after day. And those are tools that I have found to help me um, stay out of being a stagnant path of, and ways that I can always improve personally, professionally, peers, helping, et cetera. And um, books are just one, one method. And you can find many of those bestsellers on Amazon or, or any other place. Um, just look for ways of doing a better you, a, a version two, version three of you as you need. Okay, thank you for that. And if I knew that you were a Star Trek fan, we would have scratched this entire conversation and just <laughs> just dedicated the full hour to discussing that. No problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anything from TOS through TNG, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, Enterprise, and Discovery Now, and so, soon to I think they. So it's in another Picard and Strange New Worlds. Yeah, yeah I, I, Picard and. I, I, I love it. To me, it's been one of those uh, lifelong type things growing up watching them as reruns, uh, actually, when they first came out and reruns. And it, the message is subtly in there. It, you know, it, granted, it's sci-fi, but the message is in there that we can be better than who we are and what we are. And if you That's believe right. in that, then you can go a long way in your career and your life. Okay. And I think with that note, we can... We can end this episode here. Uh, I had a lot of fun, Maury, talking with you. Thank you for taking the time. I do know that your calendar is full, as you mentioned, and everybody's very busy. So I do appreciate it. And thank you again. And I'm I'm sure your answers will resonate, you know, with our listeners. And uh, hopefully, if 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 even one of the listeners can can walk away with something that you've said, that would be that would be an accomplishment for me. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Everyone stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you.